Welcome back to another episode of the Software Vlogcast. This is episode number 31. Christian's still off in the Dominican, laying on his nuts, getting its suntan somewhere. So uh, I'm fortunate enough to be joined by the one and only Lucky Chewy. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid to have this podcast, to be honest. You're afraid? I'm a little afraid. I'm not a very intimidating guy. Well, I'm not afraid of you per se. <laughs> I'm afraid of what's going to happen. Uh, I mean, we did just spend 10 minutes before even pressing record <laughs> shooting the shit. So like, I fear that this turns into like a four hour thing and we got shit to do today. It's New yeah, Year's Eve. I, I, have, I have dinner reservation at six, but other than that, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm down to pretty much go till 530 if need be. I mean, hey, we'll make it a two part. It, it, <laughs> would, be, it would be the first for us. Um, right. Yeah. So happy New Year. Happy New Year. Foremost. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when they see this, it'll be long after the new year, but that's okay. The, the sentiment will technology. be felt. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So I, I kind of just like want to properly introduce you and give you your just dues uh, for anyone who, for whatever reason, doesn't know who you are. Ten and a half million in live earnings. Uh, your largest score was in uh, the Bellagio Alpha 8 for 1.7 million. That's a sick amount of money. It was pretty sweet. Yeah. Uh, we'll get into that because <laughs> I have questions. Sure. Um. You you were in the high roller scene back then, like when high rollers. Yeah, first it was sort up. of just emerging at that point. I mean, right. I guess from my recollection, high rollers sort of began overseas. Really, I think Australia had the only hundred k for a while, and um, then it like blew up. Right, it was like a two hundred fifty k or something like that. Yeah, that got added at some point. Uh, EPTs began running high rollers mm -hmm. at some point, and then the whole Aria thing uh, was was taking off around that time. They started, I think, just doing one day ten ks. Okay, and it evolved from there. Um, they actually started Bellagio, I think, moved it over. Yeah, there. Cats was really a big part of that, I think. I think that's like what led to this high roller circuit. Yeah, Kerry just wanted to play. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he just found a way to make it happen. So, cool. so were you just like in a position in your career at that point where you were like, okay, this is a new soft market. I'm already good at tournaments. Like, this is kind of my bread and butter. I'm going to find ways to get into the, to the field. Yeah, to some degree. I probably was a little bit less confident than that. Um, I mean, I competed against all those players in whatever the, you know, next lowest buying size was at that point. Yeah. And I didn't feel outclassed or anything. Um, I also for a long time was never selling at markup. I was just selling at face because I was just like, oh, I'll just get in the tournament. And I mean, it is what it is. Uh, yeah. I don't like have regrets about it, but I guess it just speaks to sort of ways in which I was sort of naive about markets and business uh, right. in my younger years. I mean, to be fair, I think that there's... That might not be a naivete. It's it might just be a pers uh, personality trait. Yeah, it is a personality trait. That's true. I'm very it much be the both, same, though, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Uh, but I'm very much the same. Like I've sold very little throughout my career, and when I have, I usually like just sell it face to friends and families to mm -hmm. give them the sweat. Um, but then you get to a point where it's like, if you're selling for a purpose, like you know, to play this event, having that like three to five percent free roll is really, really, really huge. If you can garner that because you know the field justifies it yeah yeah absolutely um okay so take me through that i guess a little bit of uh like where were you at in your career where were you at in your study and stuff like that prior to winning the alpha 8 well study was a little bit different like solvers hadn't really taken over too much um actually were they even out yet it was 2014 i don't think i had used a solver yeah i think they point. came out like late 13 but you know, nobody was really dabbling publicly at that point. Yeah. So I guess I was just, you know, collaborating ideas with friends as it had been up until that point in my career. Um, I played a lot of tournaments. I mean, I had a lot of success online and in various other live events, just uh, nothing of that magnitude. So it was it was certainly like a, a pretty substantial breakthrough. Yeah. Um, just to 
have the opportunity. I actually uh, busted a bullet on day one that I wasn't even sure I was going to buy in late on day two. Um, and then, yeah, people were just like, hey, well, you know, we'll, we'll fire again with you. I'm like, all right. This is 100K, right? Yeah. How much? Uh, well, you don't have to say, but like as far as the scope of how much you retained yourself, was it like very little or moderate? I think it was 20%. Okay, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty strong. It wasn't too bad. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. So like, I, I mean, I'm always like touch and go of like how much people want to review all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I think it's important for people to understand like you're not a coward if you don't have 100% of yourself. No, yeah, I mean, if you do have 100% of yourself, you're probably more likely to be an idiot. Right. Right. <laughs> and I think that that's kind of like the narrative that uh, goes unspoken. People just are of this perception. And we were kind of talking about it off air about like uh, Liv's podcast that just came out yeah. where he kind of revealed like, oh, I've been back for a long time and I'm not nearly as rich as you think. It's just like, well, yeah, like that's how business works. Any business like this just happens to be self-invested. And, you know, there's a lot of chest puffing and, and arrogance that kind of takes place in the field because it's very competitive in nature. And it does have that sport like uh, atmosphere to it. But at the end of the day, we are kind of. Uh, you know, going back to that conversation, we are kind of playing an infinite game. There, yeah. There's nobody that can be dubbed a winner, right? Um, I just did a podcast for uh, with Lee Davy for Run It Once. Mm -hmm. And it's called like The Hero's Journey. Yeah. And, okay. I've been it, on it with him. It's, it's amazing. Cool. Yeah. I think it's like such a great idea. And one of the questions he asked me is like, you know, what, what drives you? Do you want to be the best in the world? And my immediate response is like, uh, well, kind of, but like that doesn't exist. Like, who are you going to point to to say the best in the world. It's like, I just want to more about trying to be the best than actually like being dubbed like a winner, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and that's the thing. It's just like, I think the more proper response there, if you are a big picture person who aspires to be successful for a long period of time is I want to be in rare air for as long as I possibly can and yeah. just like sustain. It's a fair way to put it. Yeah. So, um, so you have this score. And at the time, I assume like, you know, you're playing pretty much everything because Black Friday or did you travel? Uh, I did go live in Toronto for a couple of years on and off. Mm -hmm. um, I'd bought a place in Vegas uh, that I still had. I ended up selling late 2015. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, I was traveling a lot at that time and, and playing a lot of the high rollers around Vegas and, and elsewhere. Yeah. Have you or like you don't still play online, do you like the scoops, W Coop, stuff like that? No, I haven't played in years and I don't blame you yeah <laughs> <laughs> can't do it um okay so the next notable thing that i see whenever i look at your resume is there's just a massive gap between 16 and 19 yeah where it just seemed like you kind of grew a beard and fell off the face of the <laughs> well i grew the beard and was actually like doing really well at poker around that time yeah um i did sort of try my hand uh at business which at least as of yet hasn't been particularly successful sure uh <laughs> But I think that's, you know, largely mm, the reason for the gap, at least insofar as results go. I did play and I just didn't really do well, but I was putting in a lot less volume. Right. Um, and I was just sort of trying to focus on other things. Um, but yeah, I mean, poker is one of those things like you, you kind of get out what you put in, right? Yeah, so. for sure. Um, and I get it. Like, it's, it's strange because having started the business myself, I did it in a lot of ways because the games that I was playing in were so restricted. Right. So it's just like I'm constantly on call and I have no idea if I'm going to get a seat or not. Mm -hmm. But what I do know is at the end of the year, I'm probably only going to get to put in like three or four hundred hours. Mm -hmm. So I have to make the most of them whenever I play. And the only way to do that is to stay sharp. So in my mind, it was like, well, I can kill two birds with one stone. If I'm mostly studying 
outside of play and I have an interest in business and helping and teaching and all this other stuff. Why don't I just like shift my downtime into focusing on that? And for the most part, it's been great. Like I'm certainly better than I would have been had I not gone down that path. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that like when you get to the point of being able to teach, you are going to be at a much more fluent level of your own understanding than if you're just kicking ideas around and saying like, I, I got it. I got it. Oh, for sure. I mean, um, like, I, I know we've spoken about it. I teach at Learn WPT. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love it. It's it's great. Um, there's just something for me that's really fun about telling someone something that they're kind of missing yeah. and seeing them light up about it. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was able to connect that dot for you. That's just a good feeling. So I, I think this is like a good topic to talk about because uh, we do have that in common. We're both kind of doing these live academies a lot and we mm-hmm. see uh, a lot of people come through the doors that are pretty eclectic in nature. Yeah, Specifically, absolutely. like uh, I would imagine you guys cater to the live realm as well, right? Yeah. Mostly. Yeah, I would say the majority of the vast majority of players are playing small mid stakes live. Yeah. Okay. So same. Uh, our, ours is a bigger range. It's anything from like probably two five to like ten twenty plus. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's the same thing. It's it's mostly live players. And um, I'll kind of like get into an aside later of like how I think the community, at least via poker Twitter, is shaping. But I guess like what challenges do you see whenever you know you? especially being kind of a hybrid yourself playing both live and online, you can see the game through both lenses Mm -hmm. where you can kind of recognize like, okay, this is the theory optimal way to play. This is the theory optimal way to speak about the game, to discuss big ideas, to, to move the needle and whatnot. And then there's this whole other realm that actually makes up the vast majority of the community that could never comprehend any of this. So like, how do you go about bridging that gap? Yeah. I mean, it it is a challenge. Uh, The way I kind of look at it is that, you know, I'm hired to teach sort of the the theory of the game. And I think the the analogy that I like to use in my mind is that um, if somebody wants to be a writer, mm-hmm. they have to learn the alphabet first. Right. And some people just need to learn the alphabet. Yeah. And then they can learn grammar and sentence, sentence structure and like, you know, um, how to break up paragraphs and all that kind of stuff um, and all the nuance that comes with the creativity of writing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just do my best. It's, it's always a mixed bag of, of personalities and, and skill gaps. So it's tough to really go in, um, you know, there's like a, a curriculum, which mm-hmm. is the basis for what's being taught. But insofar as addressing uh, specific concerns, there's only really so much you can prepare for until people right. voice what it is they, they do and don't understand. Yeah, yeah, I, I guess like that's kind of, that's kind of the sticking point that, that uh, I would like to see the community better understand and address a little bit more. I think that like, if you're battling it out online these days, the barrier of entry to even break even at the, at at that level, uh, even like micro stakes up, is so much greater than it is at the live level of like one two plus. So they're very different conversations that are being had between these two realms, right? Um, one, it's incredibly critical to hammer home the mechanics, and that's not to say the mechanics won't help you in the live realm. Of course they will, but. Uh, I feel like there's a lot more room for error whenever it comes to like the fringe, you know? So it's like slapping somebody on the wrist for opening King Jack off an uh, early position when they should only be opening King Jack suited. It's just like, that's, that's going to kind of go over their heads a little bit. I think as far as like what corrective action should be and instead making them understand why King Jack off is not an open seems like so much more critical to me. But I think that, uh, 
like the intelligence of the online world is is so advanced because they're using all of these tools that the why doesn't really resonate it doesn't it doesn't matter that much well it's just like ingrained at that point the right. why um yeah I, I do see what you're saying like i think addressing the root cause is helpful mm-hmm. and i think if i can put myself in your shoes the issue that i feel like you have um with i guess the way things are being approached in a public sense is that uh my the way i'm thinking that you're thinking is it's too much of a one size fits all sort of yeah mentality and i can empathize with that um because there are, you know, nuance to different games and whatnot. But, you know, being um, sort of bred as an online player, I also, uh, you know, I do empathize with the other side as well, which is like, this theory is going to help you. It's like, it's almost like a fail safe. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, I agree with all that. I, I think like, uh, what's lost in the conversation is that the, the, the approach to the online realm has a great weeding out process, right? So there's gonna be just thousands of people who can't hack it for whatever reason either they don't get the uh theory or they don't uh utilize the tools very well or they're just more distracted yeah it's easier to be distracted playing online than it is at the casino right there there, there's a plethora of reasons why they'll just fail and fail very quickly because they're putting in such a rapid volume by comparison also player pool is just a lot smaller now yeah yeah, so tougher environment, uh, you know, uh, wider extract or distractions, greater barrier of entry as far as like baseline knowledge and, and things like that exist. Whenever you go into live realm, it's like I know five ten players that are beating the game for a very large sum that definitely don't understand the fundamental math behind the game. Yeah, but they have something else that that they're using to their benefit, which I guess speaks to your point. That yeah, exactly. That that was kind of like where I was going is that um, I think what we have to recognize is the vast majority falls into into the left category, not to the right, because either they failed online and have now shifted and moved into a much softer environment in live, or they've just always been there. And their learning is so curbed by the fact that uh, they don't get punished in the same sense that they would online if they didn't have these great fundamentals. So uh, I'm never one to say the fundamentals don't matter or that we shouldn't teach to them. It's just more so that I think like being hypercritical over like some hand histories that are thrown around or whatever the case may be, instead of actually like looking at the the deeper comprehension of like game flow, game dynamics and, and other things that matter in the live realm, uh, it's kind of like losing the forest through the trees. Yeah, um, I can definitely see that perspective. I think, uh, you know, to, to bring back to the workshops, at least from what I've found teaching them so far is that uh, people do really benefit from getting that baseline mm-hmm. because at least if you know the baseline, you can understand how to shift away from it. Right, right. But if you don't really know what that looks like, then you're kind of just out there in the wild. And some people can make that work. Yeah. Like some of the 510 players you alluded to, like, you know, you do play against those people here and now or uh, here and again, rather. And yeah, it's just interesting to see like how they've sort of um, carved their own path. Yeah. Uh, well, I think we're kind of saying the same thing because yeah, uh, so. we do the same thing too. Like we teach the baseline and then eventually work them towards deviations. But I think it's the the communication process that's so very different. Mm-hmm. So I try to speak to them in their language, right? And a lot of like the material that we're developing, it's not necessarily going to have a solver output attached to it. It's going to be more like game theory principles of like, okay, here's what MDF is. Here are how the pot odds model works um, and other really solidified math that is so important to beat out the mistakes that people make i mean it's it's like if you go play a 2-5 game and see some of the egregious errors that people make to criticize like 
playing too many hands or or some other like silly uh i guess like thing that we know is slightly negative ev it just kind of goes out the window yeah i mean there's a lot larger uh mistakes being made i agree with that yeah um just one last point to touch on uh i know we've discussed the the trainer that uh wpt released Mm -hmm. and i think that that is at least the way i found it to be most efficient to use is to look at the outputs and play with it and see like okay um, you know, what boards do you bet big on? What boards do you bet small on? How does range interaction change based on these positions and so on? Um, but yeah, memorizing the outputs just isn't really right. a particularly practical way for, for at least, a, you know, um, a beginner or like a, an intermediate player to um, to really thrive. I think anything that will allow you to train intuition like that through experience without the cost of yeah. like going broke in the process <laughs> is great. And uh, that was, uh, I kind of got into a beef on Twitter the other day, but like that was kind of my pushback was, uh, there was a lot of like outcry that the poker out loud hands we released are egregious for coaches to be playing this way um, because we're playing too many hands. We're playing too laggy. We're doing things that just aren't solver approved. And it's like, okay, fine. But like, why can't it just be for people to observe and say like, I think that's an error and then test that, you know, to, like leave it, leave the onus on the viewer rather than on uh, the content creator you know what I mean? Because I, I guess I do know like, what you mean. It's interesting. I, I, because I'll be honest. Like when I played on the show with you guys, I did think like, hmm, people are playing pretty darn loose here. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, we are. We yeah. are for sure. But like, I guess what I'm saying is like they get the benefit of of learning from our mistakes rather than having to actually go and experience it themselves. And yeah, I, yeah, I mean that's it's an interesting way to teach. I didn't quite, I guess, consider that it was that mm, premeditated or at least done with that uh, perspective in mind. I, I, I mean, you know, we didn't seek out <laughs> to like go punt. But it was like, hey, we're only going to get a couple hundred hands throughout the course of this season. Like, it's six max. You know, let's go ahead and release the hounds a little bit. Mm -hmm. And obviously, it gets progressively tighter as the lineups get tougher. Season one was, you know, off the rails by comparison to season four. Yeah, true. Where uh, things tighten up a little bit. Um, Okay, so I want to get back a little bit to uh, the business side of things, the resume gap. Um, First thing, I haven't read it, but tell me about uh yoga poker or poker yoga rather yeah yoga poker okay um so it was basically just uh sort of me trying to put together my thoughts of you know what in many ways ties into this previous conversation we just had of you know how does the logical and theoretical side of the game um mesh with the sort of emotional intuitive side Mm -hmm. and yeah, I mean, I'm just someone who's a firm believer in, in both and uh, trying to use them synergistically as best I can. And uh, yeah, I would say it, it just laid out kind of my my thoughts um, in somewhat uh, somewhat specific sense, but not really like as it pertains to exact hands I've played uh, in terms of how, you know, that is for me in the moment. And so, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but like, okay. does it kind of like quantify how you or like does is there some sort of like measurement of how you arrive at intuitive decisions not really because i don't know that it really can be quantified at least with the tools that i currently have or right. that we currently have at our disposal mm-hmm. more so just that um it's it's almost like me trying to you know figure out my my thoughts as i'm writing it right and like hey this is a thing that i find exists for me does anyone else out there yeah, 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 yeah. resonate with this <laughs> i honestly i think that that is so powerful and like something that this community specifically has geared so far away from because yeah. we just want proof right we want the end results we want the answers we want 
we want the confidence to know that largely variance is going to dictate our failures, right? And I think we kind of like want that taken out of our hands so that we don't have to like look in the mirror and be like, I don't know if I'm failing or if I'm getting unlucky. Um, and, you know, as a live player, like that's the bulk of your career. Mm -hmm. It's just like, I'm not sure if there are errors being made on my behalf or how great they are by comparison to like how unfortunate am I getting uh, to constantly run into it or to, you know, run kings into aces deep in this event where versus life-changing money or whatever. And that, that's that's a difficult mentality to juggle. Yeah. So I, I like... This this is honestly like why I wanted to talk to you. Uh, you're one of my favorite people to talk to for oh, this thanks, reason, <laughs> in the sense that like you're just so unapologetic about the fact that there's so much we don't know. Yeah. Well, I would say like there's there's things that we know that we know, mm. like say theory. It's a pretty it's a pretty known thing. Yeah. And there's things that we know that we don't know. And I would put this sort of in that category, or at least for me, some people would say maybe you know we don't know that we don't know it. We it's, it's just like sort of an arbitrary abstract thing. Yeah. Um, but I've had enough experience in poker um, where I'm, I'm, I'm confident enough that something exists in that sort of realm of intuitive understanding, uh, spontaneous knowledge and, um, you know, just like in the moment, uh, accurate perception that sort of doesn't really come from that logical mind. And I, I, I don't know why it happens or, right really what exactly prompts it because it doesn't happen all the time but it right. happens sometime right and then i would say there's also things that we don't know that we don't know and that's just a whole nother category of you know it's just it's just the mystery of life yeah and i don't i don't really know how those things fit into our experience because you know if you were to sort of map those three or graph them or whatever well you don't even you don't even really know how much each uh sector is making up of your experience in life like what if the unknown unknown is like 99.9%? Exactly. Yeah. We're just and, completely like fish out of water. At that and that's point. why I think like poker is such a fantastic testing ground. It's so dangerous to be dismissive of of those other two uh, kind of categories that you outlined. Especially it, if one hasn't uh, explored it deeply and at least tried to integrate it. If they've at least tried to integrate it or thought over it and it doesn't work for them, that's, you know, that's fine. That's, yeah. that's their choice. But that's kind of a means to an end, right? Because... I, I think like, and again, I think this community is very intelligent by nature, but like, I think we can acknowledge, you know, the nature nurture argument, the, the IQ versus EQ that's kind of bred into all of us. There's very large relevance to both. Mm -hmm. And it seems like we're on a slippery slope and maybe it doesn't impact anybody in their lifetime, right? Like you might just be a crusher, uh, just straight following the, the rationale and the IQ. And, uh, that's because humans are failable and that's what you're playing against. But uh, to me, I, I feel like whether it's in our lifetime or in the future, like something is going to spawn off of this game just because it is so complex and so deep. And like, you know, we kind of already saw it a little bit with the AI that Carnegie Mellon developed. Sure. Uh, I think Liberatus ended up getting bought by the government for war games. Wow. Uh, Didn't know that. I'm, I'm pretty certain of that. I'm not, not positive. People can, <laughs> I'm not sure how I feel about that. People can fact check. <laughs> yeah, because I, I remember when I heard it, I was just kind of like, okay, that's interesting yeah it is i hope it's to prevent death and not yeah of course <laughs> not bring it upon people but um but yeah i mean you know it, it is kind of this thing where we're explorers yeah you know? it's like we're in the great unknown right now yeah i mean i i do think that um i guess to touch on my point earlier you know how much we know and don't know mm -hmm. and whatnot um solvers did very much um sort of 
pave the way yeah. to understanding specifics about certain things. But to your point, that is really just uh, tackling the side of IQ. Right. And it does nothing to tackle EQ. And I also think that, uh, you know, if we, if we retroactively look back at pre-solver days and started to uh, find players that we held in high regard that, like, had a good intuition for this game, I think you would see more alignment than, than we would expect. Oh, yeah. Oh, you yeah. know, not to the point where it's just like, oh, yeah, Durr was playing like solver proof strategy in 2010 yeah, or anything not like that. that. Yeah. But I do think that like you would see like if we examined like some sick plays here and there where it's just like, how could he know in this spot? It's just like, well, it's kind of approved. Yeah. 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 No, it's it's very interesting how uh, intermeshed the, the solver outputs are and just, you know, the the raw sort of um, brain power that we had at our disposal yeah and the experience and then the pattern recognition and so on it, it is really interesting how how much overlap there is yeah i asked nick uh i go one question that you want me to to ask chewy and he goes you gotta ask him how he navigates the intuition uh versus versus the analytics and yeah. i'm just like well we already know he's a magician <laughs> <laughs> i mean sometimes i feel that way that's probably yeah. not a sufficient answer for for the viewers but no, I mean, like, I, I, I really do my best to understand what theory dictates, but then I always give myself the freedom to sway from that based on, uh, you know, any sort of intuitive impulse or any other sort of variable or nuance that might present itself in the moment. And that, that might seem like sort of a, a broad general answer, but that that's the truth. I, I don't think it is. I think it kind of carries me into uh, another thing I kind of want to touch on. And do, do you do anything like to what? Well, I already know the answer to this question, but I guess like tell me uh, your thoughts on um, the expansion of brain power and like, uh, you know, this whole concept that we only use 10% of our brain or whatever. Uh, maybe that's an underestimation or whatever the case may be. But I think like as we're moving forward into uh, into the technological phase, we're seeing a lot more of this trying to unlock the unknown mm -hmm. and and trying to get ourselves to like not supercomputer sense, but like actually we're doing it though. Yeah. Right. Like, so it's tapping in and accessing a lot of the other things. And, you know, we understand that there are multiple components to the brain. We understand the fight or flight system. We understand uh, the emotionally driven brain. We understand the rational brain. So I guess like, do you do uh, or do you practice a lot of things like meditation, uh, fasting, whatever the case may be to try to improve your cognition? Yeah, definitely. Um, I do meditate regularly. Uh, I do some intermittent fasting. I don't really do prolonged fasting. I just find that I become a little bit worthless which maybe is kind of the point just to like go into solitude <laughs> um but i haven't really done much of that um but yeah i, I definitely I'm, I'm extremely interested in unlocking our potential and also increasing like um neuropathways and neuroplasticity mm -hmm. and just being able to more effectively problem solve and um just pick up on things that we otherwise might not and that's something that uh you know to your point earlier about what poker will do outside of the game itself seems pretty awesome yeah uh you know these things are going to help us win at poker but they're also just going to help us be better humans and problem solvers and who knows what uh great minds that sort of you know uh come through this game can do elsewhere yeah i i think that it's kind of fascinating in the sense that whether we acknowledge it or not we're always operating from a subjective perspective oh for, i don't i don't even believe in an objective sort of thing there's like i would say consensus collective consciousness mm -hmm. sorts of uh perspectives 
but you can't just eliminate who you are and just right. be like, oh yeah, this is objective. It's like, no, that doesn't exist. Right. And even like outside of just mass data collection, which is pretty difficult to to hone in on and like keep variables constant enough where it's just objectively reliable, right? Yeah. Subjectively, a lot of things are reliable. But yeah. There, there isn't a lot in this life that we've gained clarity over to the point where it's like, that is 100% a thing and it'll never change. Yeah, there there are very few things that um, will really just stay consistent throughout the rest of the universe. <laughs> right, right. So I guess like the point that I'm trying to, to make there is that the beauty of poker and other complex systems like this that we take the time to uh, try to develop problem solving in, it gives us a bit of guidance through our subjectivity, mm. right? So it's like if you approach a game like poker through a strictly subjective bias where you know, your main focus is the result or whatever the case may be, you fail. Like the game punishes you for that. Yeah, that's uh, good. It's good to get that feedback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think like when we're talking about extrapolation and how, you know, we could potentially get more in tune to, uh, I guess, like benefits that our minds offer that we're not aware of, poker might actually be a great vehicle for that. Yeah, I think it is. I think like, uh, you know, teaching uh, children that are sort of drawn to games maybe not poker exactly because it has such a gambling component to it, but something similar enough to trigger that um, part of their brain is a great way to set somebody up to be a good problem solver. Yeah. So uh, I guess like speaking to that point, um, you know, when we're talking about like trying to expand and refine and become more enlightened, do you think that that is a lot more on the rational knowledge base side? Or do you think that that's a lot more on the like EQ emotional side? I think it's much more on the EQ side, and that's probably not a particularly popular opinion. But I, I, I think that, you know, you do have to sort of, I guess, accept the fact that they do have a synergy to them. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, if anything, we can look around the world and see that uh, EQ is probably the thing that's uh, holding us back in, in some ways. Like there's plenty of very intelligent people and there's probably more intelligent people than there are empathetic people. Yeah. And I agree with we that. Need both. It, we need both. And ideally, everybody has both. But so we're just not there right this moment. Yeah, I I, uh, I can't remember what I was reading, but uh, essentially there it was um, a chart that was demonstrating uh, the discrepancy between EQ and IQ. And a lot of it is, well, we know that EQ is environmentally based, like or, or at least that's the, the presumption that most are operating off of. Like you're not just born with it. Mm -hmm. But IQ, you're largely just born with. And what they found was that people with an above average IQ often will have that strength cultivated their entire life. And thus their EQ will remain relatively stagnant unless they're in a really uh, substantial situation where their environment just does a great job of conditioning them. Mm. So the discrepancy between IQ and EQ of like highly intelligent people uh, tends to be relatively low on the EQ meter. And what you find is that like, as you creep down to average and slightly below, EQ often completely circumvents their IQ and it becomes their main source of navigating this life. And I think it's kind of a good parallel between the online live realm in the sense that, you know, one, one is just navigating data and trying to ultimately arrive at conclusions that will make sense on the dollar for every single decision made. Well, I'd push back on that a little. Okay. I do think you can use EQ online. That's yeah, like you there's could. Still, there's still timing tells. There's still just uh, intuitive is sort of or intuition is sort of a non-local Thing. So I, I, I'm not dismissing uh, intuition itself. I guess like in the broader scheme of things, we would lump 
intuition into eq yeah majority it has to go more in that category than the other yeah but i do think it's like a venn diagram where it's it's a part of both i agree it will heighten your intelligence it'll also heighten your emotions yeah uh what i'm more speaking to is that in the live realm a lot of these people are winning by navigating people Mm -hmm. uh so i think that you know they're probably a lot more emotionally in tune to their environment or to themselves and uh going back to the relationship between the two i think that there's a lot to be said for um how much closer you can get to the ceiling of your IQ whenever you do have a relatively high EQ. Because whenever you're able to employ empathy, the next thing that follows tends to be uh, like a certain humbleness where you recognize that like the world is bigger than us. (laughs) And, you know, you don't validate yourself through answers any longer. You validate yourself more through questions. Mm -hmm. And I think like for those who are heading down the knowledge path, that's really critical. Yeah. Right. Because like if you're just out there trying to prove something, you'll probably get there in in some loose fashion but uh you know then what yeah then what is a great question <laughs> right um so last thing i i want to i want to touch on in this just because uh i enjoy this topic and i think yeah. you're the right person to talk to about it cool so with with the idea of uh you know if we're able to unlock our, our potential i think we all kind of agree that like the unknown much more falls into the category of uh senses and feel and intuition and just kind of like navigating life darkly uh or blindly where or i guess like how destructive then do you think the compartmentaliz the compart to men- compartmentalization yes <laughs> of uh emotions versus rationale in in poker comes into play sorry what what exactly is the question I'm, I'm well i guess like maybe this doesn't apply to you because you probably don't compartmentalize it but oh yeah i, maybe I not. <laughs> think the incentive whenever you're a high level poker player is to compartmentalize emotion away from rationality mm. i guess i just try to acknowledge that um there are two ways to think in in terms of these two components you can either look at a hand from this perspective or that perspective but you can reach two simultaneous conclusions and sort of play them against each other and maybe weigh out like the likelihood of one as opposed to the other having more validity in the moment. Um, one thing that someone told me uh, that I, I wrote about in that blog I put out recently uh, this summer that I thought was really wise was that if you if you know that you're biased towards one particular thing and you think that like you have some sort of you know intuitive impulse for that thing, you know you're it's probably not worth giving as much credibility to that as right. the logical side of things. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I guess I, I let them, uh, let them be their own thing. I don't, I don't really try to shut them off from each other. I think they, they work best when integrated. How do you go about that integration process? Uh, just like I said, by, by knowing that they're, they're two, they start separately, but they, or maybe they don't even start separately, but I guess I, I sort of view it that way. But ultimately they're, they're trying to help you reach the best conclusion, like they're tools at your disposal. Mm-hmm. So they're not fighting against each other. They're just trying to get you to the best answer um, to whatever situation you find yourself in. So like when you find yourself studying or, or just thinking deeply about the game or hell, anything else, mm-hmm. uh, you know, whatever, something in life, some big decision, do you do you find yourself kind of like creating a steel man argument uh, from an intuitive sense versus a rational sense? Or Sometimes. I think that's like a really interesting way to go about it to be honest yeah i mean i think you have to weigh out different possibilities in your mind just to sort of i guess and maybe this speaks to um neuropathways being developed and like you know you said earlier uh 
maybe we only use 10% of our brain or whatever. I don't exactly think that. I think, you know, right. if, if we... That's just the old nomenclature. Yeah, yeah. If we are to believe that we're actually autonomous beings, we use 100% of our brain, we might just not be currently activating whatever portion of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think it's important to just sort of familiarize yourself with different ways of thinking and see what works and um, yeah, step into that unknown as much as we can. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, I find it... I find it hard. Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's a challenge. I mean, it's basically like breaking new ground. Yeah. I mean, that's basically what evolution is, right? You're like constantly uncovering new aspects of what we are as a species, really. Right. Well, I don't like personally find it hard to think that way because uh, I feel like that's how I'm wired. Mm. Like I very much come from a standpoint of, you know, what are root causes and how can we find big picture solutions? And, you know, I, I put a lot more value into the process and the discipline and the uh rigorness of all of that than i do in the actual result itself a lot of times you know the results are just kind of a a a stopping point where it's just like okay now we move on to something bigger and better but uh i find it difficult i guess specifically in this community as a whole to not come off disingenuous or i guess uh i don't want to say like snake oil salesman but i feel like that's that's kind of the the vibe that that whole realm has gotten where it's like if you're if you're speaking to consciousness then you're kind of uh you kind of are wearing tinfoil hat you know and i I feel like it kind of gets a bit of a bad rap in the sense that like to me this is this is what our individual journeys are like all about right yeah yeah it's trying to reach that enlightenment where you get to the point where you have such deep self-actualization that like you can just be altruistic from that point forward yeah, no, I mean, I, I don't disagree really with any of that. Um, I do think that uh, it's one of those things where uh, this is like a sort of, I guess, maybe crude metaphor, but I went on a hike recently and we got to the end and there's this beautiful waterfall and there's a fence up and we used to be able to just hop over the fence. And now there's a sign that says like, you know, don't hop over area surveilled $5,000 fine and or six months in jail. Yeah. And it's like, dang, a few people ruined this beautiful thing for everybody else. Because a lot of people probably just do go hang out and take a cool picture or whatever. Yeah. Dunk your head under the waterfall. Yeah. And I think it's a little bit similar insofar as like the snake oil salesman type of um, archetype that you find in uh, poker, self-help or whatever, trying to sell this idea where maybe they are right about this thing and they're just, you know, terrible elsewhere. Yeah. And it just kind of gets a bad rap. Yeah. And I think it's, it's kind of up to, I mean, I don't necessarily feel like um uh, a huge responsibility for this but i do think that like i have this gift in order or it's what i view as a gift to be able to see this i may as well share it in whatever way i can i think you're very similar in that regard yeah i i feel really strongly about this in the sense that like i gravitate towards people who who think that way and uh i think there are a lot of good thought leaders out there but the whole thought leader industry as a whole is bullshitty right it's it's largely can be yeah yeah. sorry the industry wasn't created out of bad intentions but i think there are enough bad actors who are just out there trying to become internet famous and make a lot of money Mm -hmm. that it makes the industry as a whole really look bad and uh you know it preys upon very dependent people who kind of are looking for an outlet to better themselves yeah and to me like that's sad that sucks and it's something that like you know i don't know what my next stage is going to be uh 
I don't even want to say post poker, but like in line with poker. Yeah. But it's like, I gravitate towards that, but there's a big part of me that's super resistant to it because the idea of, uh, constantly be being put under fire because, you know, you're speaking your thoughts or, or whatever. Like, uh, Jordan Peterson is a great example of this. Like, I, I just think he's an open thinker. I don't yeah. think he's pushing anything. I don't think he's like trying to sell anybody on a narrative. I think that like he just thinks his thoughts out loud yeah. and hopes that they help some people. My biggest gripe actually with him is that he's just a bit cynical for me. That's very true. Yeah. Uh, but it, I, 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 yeah, I agree with you. He's, he's very like, uh, um, like, you know, we, we, we view Canadians as being like so nice, right? <laughs> he's just an angry guy. Yeah. And he know. just has like this undertone to him where it's like, he's still nice and respectful about it, but like, you could just tell that like, he's very jaded yeah. in some of the things that he's saying. It's just like, you could be mean, man. You know, like come to America for a little while. Just let it rip. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know how well that does to develop EQ necessarily. That's true. I guess expressing your emotions and, and not uh, burying them is a good thing. So. So uh, on that on that point though, like, what do you think is like uh, some of the best pathways to developing EQ? Well, it's interesting. Uh, I actually had a similar conversation with Lee on his podcast about this. Mm -hmm. And thinking back, like, I mean, really, the time that I developed, I would say, I guess, the bulk of my EQ were two sort of um, instances as a child. One was being bullied in school, and I remember being really angry. But then, for whatever reason, just the way that I was raised or, or my dna or who knows the unknown unknown maybe yeah uh i just wasn't angry at them i i just felt compassion for them because i was like wow like yeah you know, how shitty is your life that you feel the need to like push someone else around and i don't know i just feel really grateful that i had that sort of realization as a kid and the uh the other was i guess a similar conclusion um and i can't remember even which happened first but uh some kid stuck his head out the window and just got nailed by a pole Oh my god! It wasn't in my town. But it was like a thing in the store, uh, in the news, and I remember my mom telling me about it, and I was just like, "Well, that's pretty dumb," which is true, but it's not maybe the most empathetic way to look at it. Right. And my mom was like, "Yeah, I mean, you're you're not wrong, but like you have to feel empathy for the way that you know his family feels, and that he yeah. you know would look back on this and feel now, and and so on." I guess. Um, you know, teaching uh, these things to children is is pretty pivotal in terms of how they, they end up later. And it's one of the reasons that, you know, to speak to, again, what you just mentioned, not necessarily something post-poker, but something that could align with poker down, down the road. I'd love to get involved in education in some mm. way. And I've even, like, written up a mock curriculum and uh, just sort of uh, tried to explore ways in which my education could have been improved and there are a lot of ways yeah and i think uh you know starting early is sort of the the best thing um but yeah uh insofar as now i think just trying to put yourself in other people's shoes is, is really the the thing that comes to mind as the, the most helpful way to develop that that aspect of our brain yeah i think i think as an adult you really have to be capable of taking on a greater good type of mindset mm -hmm. and i think it's pretty challenging for most especially when you're caught in the struggle it's really hard to start to view the world through the eyes of like how can i contribute to everybody instead of like how can i make my next payment on my car or my rent or food or whatever but i'm really glad that you answered that way i, I was afraid we weren't gonna align but like this is <laughs> giving more uh uh like this is kind of concreting my theory a little bit more i i also was on lee's pod and i i kind of said something similar in the sense that um, the way I framed it is that I think all children go through trauma. I think it's just inevitable, right? 
Yeah, well, we, we learn from it in many ways, right? Yeah, so that, that's kind of like what I'm getting at is like, uh, you know, there's a spectrum of what trauma really is. And, you know, we can probably qualify it in like three different categories. It's like loss where somebody close to you dies or gets ill or whatever the case may be. Uh, it can be abuse, be it physical, mental, sexual, whatever. And then, um, you know, uh, another type of trauma would be just like having to deal with like tremendous struggle, like like poverty or uh, being bullied or, or whatever the case may be in that regard. And, um, you know, obviously there's a degree of what's worse and what's better. But I think to adolescents who are developing and uh, really, you know, don't have that logical portion of their brain formulated yet they're so emotionally driven that it all kind of distills in them in the same way mm. right so whether it's just you know uh having your parents smack your ass whenever you're bad as opposed to uh, a father who like beats the shit out of you i'm not saying that they don't interpret those two things differently but i'm saying that like as far as it being registered as trauma i think they both just like take it in that way and yeah, well, you're kind of creating your own um, spectrum of good and bad when you're new to the world. Right. So the more extreme, I guess, you, you experience one thing, uh, it just kind of sets you up for your perspective later on. Right. And I think that like when we're talking about uh, people who are pretty doubted into EQ, it's how they respond to that trauma that ultimately dictates what their path is going to be moving forward yeah so those who feel like very scorned by whatever it was because they lost a brother a, a father a mother whatever the case may be they go through life with this chip on their shoulder and you know maybe a coach spoke down to them or mm -hmm. and they just want to prove people wrong for the rest of their lives but i really truly feel that people bond over trauma in a very general sense and if as a child when that stuff occurs you have an outlet where that bond can take place and that lesson can be learned I think the the end result is a lot more of like what you're saying, like, you know, this bad thing happens and your mom is there and is basically just like, hey, you know, this is a really, really terrible thing. Yeah. And terrible things happen all the time. But imagine if it were you. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, that's a great point. And it really speaks to, I guess, uh, the relevance of the way that we respond to things as opposed to the things themselves, like the things that happen in life are not nearly as relevant, it would seem, as how we deal with them. Yeah, I'm sure you've seen this, but uh, have you ever seen David Foster Wallace's This Is Water? Speech? Yeah. Okay, it's yeah. my favorite. I've, it's great. I've watched it a thousand <laughs> times. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that like that just encapsulates this whole point to a T. Yeah. Where, you know, we, we go through life with this selfish lens. And it, it definitely starts in childhood because, you know, when you're in adolescence, like the whole world that you know is an extension of what you can touch. So the world is so tiny to you. You know, you have no concept of people dying in Africa and war and all this other big adult shit. So it's like you just start to frame the world through this very selfish lens. And for those who don't ultimately develop that EQ, it carries on into adulthood. And you just end up living this like really, I don't, I don't want to necessarily project the word anger, but like short-sighted, I guess, worldview where it's like, how does this impact me? How does that impact me? How does uh, I'm the center of the universe? Mm -hmm. Like, why is this person cutting me off in traffic? Why is this grocer so slow at checking me out? Like, don't they know that I have somewhere to be? And, you know, it's a really toxic type of mindset to fall into. But I also think it's a super common one.
Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. Um, having sort of, I guess, maybe taken that a little bit too far to my own detriment, though, mm-hmm. I will say that uh, you do have to find a way to strike a balance between um, being s- a little bit selfish for survival purposes and then also being selfless in the way that you are of service to your community or whatnot. Yeah, I, I think the selfishness comes with independence. So for those who are capable of being self-sufficient and independent thinkers, learners, uh, whatever, whatever it is in their life that they're able to pursue that path of independence in, I think that they get to be selfish in those paths. And ultimately, it is a sense, it is like an act of selflessness, right? Because if you're a high performer and you're able to uh, accrue knowledge, accrue wealth, accrue empathy, accrue um, relationships, whatever, ultimately, you are doing greater good for everybody that you can now touch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if this exactly relates to this, but uh, just an anecdote that came to mind that I heard yesterday uh, is, you know, if you think of a a flower that's not blooming, it's not necessarily uh, the flower's fault. It's, It's the fault of the environment. Right. And I guess that to me sort of like reframed the, um, perspective on you know what prevents people from being successful and, and reaching their potential mm-hmm. and it's just what they're exposed to um yeah and who's around them yeah like, I, I think that's actually like for how simple of a metaphor it is i think that's like a really profound yeah it was kind re- of way to think about it i was really pleased when i heard it <laughs> yeah yeah because i mean it's just like uh if if you translate that into people and we start looking at the epidemic of issues that we have, like, why are people fat? Why are people impoverished? Why are people homeless? Like, why are these problems plaguing us as a society that's more technologically advanced, more wealthy, uh, more more resources than any other society throughout human history? And we're so quick to blame those archetypes, right? Like the poor are poor because they chose to be poor or they choose not to be active about it or whatever the case. Like we have. And some of them may, but it's not right. probably the bulk of them. That's that's the issue is that we can't seem to separate the bad actors from the unfortunate. Yeah. And the, I mean, the things you just listed that are great with our society, um, you know, emotional intelligence was not one of them. Right. And I think that's kind of the missing link. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I agree. Like, I think that it just stops getting taught at a very young age. Like, you see a lot more cultivating of it in like kindergarten, first grade type stuff Mm -hmm. than you do by the time you reach third, fourth, fifth grade. And I would even say it's most important in like formative years, like especially going through puberty with hormones flowing and stuff like, all right, let's like uh, tone down for a second and like look at what's important. Think about how we educate on sex. Oh, it's crazy. (laughs) It's I mean, we treat it like a math problem. It's like the most yeah. absurd thing, yeah. right? And like all kids have to go off of is rom-coms. Yeah. So it's just like... I mean, culture is to blame for some of these things, for sure. Yeah. I I just... Yes, it's a cultural thing to some slight degree, but I also think that it's more a resistance to refining the education process. Yeah. I mean, we've spoken about this in the past and like clearly the education system needs reform and... uh yeah, I mean, I, I would even say uh, there are a lot of people in this world who have high degrees of EQ, mm-hmm. at least relative to what you know you could uh, surmise as an average. But it doesn't seem that they're yet really in positions of power to make a lot of substantial change. But I do think the internet is is uh, giving birth to platforms for people 
um, you know, like yourself, who can just have an audience all of a sudden. This is so crazy that you're bringing this up. Uh, this was the last question I ended on with Lee. Hmm. And he asked, like, if I ever considered going into the teaching realm. And I, I kind of dismissed it. I was like, well, I never wanted to be a teacher because I felt like there was such diminishing returns for your time because you're only able to touch 20 students at a time, 30 students at a time. And that's super noble. Don't get me wrong. I, I think we have a great need for more good teachers. But I think that, uh, you know, the the bigger scope of it is like, if you can have that powerful of an impact on a small group, how can we scale? Yeah. I also think uh, maybe one thing that you leave out from that equation is how fulfilling it would be to to f like be in that role as right. a teacher. Right. Well, I guess like that's that's the ultimate conclusion is I agree with you. I think it would be super fulfilling. And I also agree with my vantage point of like um, from a problem solving standpoint, we want to be able to apply this at mass scale and like just hashing it out with Lee. We're just like, but the Internet, the yeah, Internet yeah. fixes all of that. True. Like suddenly there's just a platform where you can reach people all across the globe and, you know, you can, I, I mean, I think of it this way in the sense of like, you know, when you go back to like the Renaissance and, uh, you know, these, these periods where uh, society really took a huge leap forward because they were truly operating in the unknown. You know, yeah. we're, we're kind of speculating on what we do or don't know, but we know a million times more than those early ages, right? Yeah, but like I said, we still might not know 99.9. Right. <laughs> but I think the big difference is we don't have philosophers anymore. We don't we don't relish the idea of pursuing the arts. We don't really yeah. put a lot of emphasis into that. Well, it's coming back a little bit. Like I think in some ways, uh, and again, it's a, it's a little bit crude at times, but some of our stand-up comedians are actually our best philosophers. I kind of agree. I also think they that- They stand like, on stage and like make people laugh and like, they do profess ideas that are true to them yeah. oftentimes. I worry that the, I, I don't think like cancel culture is here to stay, but I worry that that's going to really put a hindrance on particularly comedy. Yeah, but the people who are actually like saying things of value don't care. That's true. Yeah, I, I think that's relatively true. And honestly, uh, you know, if we look around and kind of like rank the people who are most powerful right now in like the comedic world, there are people who you can't cancel. <laughs> right they're people of color they're women uh like we've probably seen more powerful women in comedy now than we ever have in the past sure uh so like they kind of have that like card where it's like ah, i get to say this <laughs> and you just you know i'm not a, i'm not a angry white male so like you you can't condemn me for what i'm about to say also it's 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 meant to be playful and funny like right. it's just not the right place for that sort of um diminishing mentality to, to take over yeah it, it's hard though because i do think that it, this is something i struggle with too uh, i really do think that a lot of people who are outraged by such tiny little triggers have the best intentions but they just have no real methodology or framework from which to operate so it's just kind of like this snowball effect of like well i knew i was supposed to be outraged about racism and then i knew i was supposed to be outraged about sexism and you know the next thing and the next thing and next thing until we finally get to a point where it's just like i don't like the pronouns you're using yeah no i i, I do uh i do see what you're saying i had a conversation with a friend recently where he was like you know if the earth was going to end and there were two like uh ships being developed and one was going to be pure love and understanding and like you know a lot of gentleness and the other one was going to be like a lot of grit and like hard work and like you're going to learn through challenges mm -hmm. which one would you put your your child on and i was like well i mean uh 
I, I, I intuitively think like, you know, the love and understanding shit. But then at the same time, like you just don't really grow unless you have challenges. Right. And I don't necessarily think it has to be that way, but that seems to be the way it is. Like yeah. I know personally, uh, I think you can relate to this. The biggest challenges are the biggest lessons. And there's, I don't know, you, you, it's, it, it seems counterproductive to try to weed out all the challenges when you start to sort of at some point fight a losing battle from yeah. my perspective. Yep. Like let's tackle the real systemic issues first and then maybe those things will just fade on their own yeah and i i think to that point if if you make it easy for people you know going all the way back to like as humans we bond over trauma and we're built to endure trauma as you know as twisted as that may be people overcome a lot like the most horrific events that you can imagine uh build some of the strongest people and i don't think that's an accident. I, I think that's somewhat by design. We're a resilient creature. So if you just strip all of that away, we kind of lose a lot of our purpose. And not in the sense of we're here to suffer, but progress is built out of suffering. And a better man and a uh, better society is is largely from learning from that suffering. Yeah, I would say the only thing I would change about that is that I would say progress is built out of challenges. Fair. And sometimes fair. challenges are suffering. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. But I think maybe the shift that we're beginning to make as a, a world, hopefully as a society, is that we don't need the challenges to involve suffering. Right. Um, it can just be a challenge of, of the mind or the body that's sort of self-imposed. I think that's easy for us, though, because we're out of the shit. Yeah. And I think that like the majority of the world is in the shit constantly um, yeah it's it's really tough and it's something that i uh struggle with often when i think about like how many people do have to live in poverty and mm -hmm. uh you know i can have some impact and i do my best but i can't like you know change it overnight so i i think that uh and we can kind of put a bow on it after this but i i think that this is something that uh has really sunk into me over the last few years basically since my mom overdosed and then my grandpa and and you know, things that happen in succession thereafter. What I kind of understood is that, you know, you reach a point of complacency, no matter what stage you're at in your life, right? You could be you're at, at your absolute most successful point. You could be at your absolute rock bottom. But really all you're talking about is resetting floors and ceilings. Hmm. And we're built to kind of operate in this state of homeostasis where we're relatively comfortable. And essentially... What I feel or, or like what I think is true for most is that we're willing to take on a certain level of suffering that falls within our comfort level. And then when the environment around us changes and throws us greater battles or whatever the case may be, our tolerance for suffering just kind of goes up. And I, I kind of like envision this through like a natural progression of how somebody ends up like uh, impoverished. Um, obviously, this isn't always the case, but like you know, say that they are just struggling to get by to begin with, right? They they bust their ass, they're a hard worker, they're super disciplined, they get a nine to five and they're just cutting it, right? They're making enough to, to survive off of. And then something tragic happens because something tragic always happens because that's how life works. Like you're always going to have some unforeseeable event occur. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad, but you know, we can only do our best to prep. And so say they lose their job, right? And they're not overly employable. And now they get two jobs that are paying slightly less than that. Well, now their willingness to suffer in order to get by 
has their tolerance for suffering has gone up, right? They're enduring maybe a 60 hour work week now instead of a 40. And then say they get laid off from one of those jobs. Well, it's like now their tolerance for suffering increases again. Like maybe now they're living on a couch in somebody else's house instead of having their own place. And then, you know, let's say they get kicked out of there and they lose their other job and now they're living off the government. It's like, well, now their tolerance for suffering goes up a little bit higher, you know, and all this basically came from, uh, Chin and I were driving to the office one day. We saw a homeless person on the corner and, you know, my heart breaks every time I see them, but it's also like, you can't help that person. You have to get to the systemic root of homelessness. In I a mean, lot of ways. I, I try to do both. <laughs> I, and I respect that. I really yeah. do. Um, I like, honest- it just sucks. Like, especially on a day like today. Yeah. It's like, dang like i think about that all the time like when it's it's shitty out but it's also like one of those things where just like like a it's it's like a holiday yeah oh yeah yeah yeah. i see what you're saying um it's like one of those things where if i let my mind go there i'll just be driving around vegas all day every day just like handing out sweatshirts and yeah i mean i've uh i've thought about doing stuff like that but yeah i don't know i I don't it's the diminishing return on your time again right it's like you're better served trying to address the root cause than you personally would be driving around Vegas all day. Every yeah, day. but then say I spend two hours watching chess videos on YouTube, right. and I'm like, well, that was like really not the best <laughs> use of my time. Right. So far as solving great, but then maybe it was because I like I increased my problem solving ability, and also you, sometimes you got to relax. And yeah, enjoy maybe life. something clicks. You know, it's like yeah. we we can only put ourselves under so much scrutiny. Um, but For any, sure. But anyway, like you know, I saw this homeless person, and it was like my heart breaks a little bit. But then it was just kind of like a conversation of like, well, how do you think that happened? Yeah, and we kind of like went back and forth, and I was like, honestly, like. She is content working this corner, getting whatever change, food, clothes, whatever is thrown her way. Like this is her life now, you know, and she's the body is resilient. The mind is resilient. She will always find a way to not die doing what it is that she's doing. And things can get worse. Things can get worse for that woman and she'll still survive because that's what we're fucking built to do. And that's like a really scary thing whenever you think about it. It's like we're actually built to endure suffering. Well, uh, I think it's, I mean, in this context, it's not exactly this way. But I think in a grander sense, it's kind of beautiful that we don't just give up. That's true. Yeah. Because yeah. if we did, well, we would not be where we are now. <laughs> yeah, I, I would probably make a loose argument that we'd just be extinct. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, there's just no way that like we would have enough tough people that were just like ah there's a cheetah coming right uh, well we ran right. yesterday so fuck it yeah it's just like <laughs> i told you not to go out in daytime all right, all right goodbye man yeah like we're just extinct so like, yeah i do think you're right that resiliency is probably born into us and what's allowed us to get this far it's just now it's a complex issue whenever you're talking about um you know massive global problems where we do have empathy and we do have a heart and like we don't i mean i don't want to see puppies suffer you know no, it's of course like, not to think to the level of like human where it's like imagine like the the horrors that are taking place in the dark corners of the world yeah no you're you're right about that one thing i really strongly feel and something that i guess like uh representatives in you know whatever sector of government or education seem to maybe not feel as much is that like everybody has some sort of gift like everybody has a passion Mm -hmm. and if everybody was given an opportunity to express that the possibilities would just be endless and like what would be created on earth would seemingly to me be nothing short of a utopia yeah and we lose a lot of those gifts for people that are born into terrible circumstances or do give up at least trying to maintain some degree of normalcy and you know do go out on on the street yeah or whatever um 
I, I think it's getting trapped in that lower third of Maslow's where it's like your only concern day in and day out from now until the day you die is food, water, shelter, clothing. Yeah, I think it misses out on things that are also integral to us, which are uh, connection right. and creativity. Right. And that's all the next level, right? It's like social connection, love for oneself, love for another. And then, you know, eventually reaching some level of enlightenment where it's like, how can I reach the greater good? That's probably missed by a massive chunk of society, 80%, maybe 70%, something like that. Yeah. And I mean, when I do these thought experiments in my mind, like the thing I keep coming back to is it just has to be education. Right. Because where else do you spend a bunch of your time when you're young and are heavily impacted? So it's yeah. cool, right? Yeah. 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 Um, so do you think AI is potentially going to lead the way for to, to like open that up? Because we're going to be rendered useless otherwise. Um, I wouldn't necessarily, so the way I look at AI is that at some point it's going to become self-aware mm-hmm. and I think that's going to be a great moment and a lot of people disagree or are fearful of it or whatever. Yeah. And I think really what it's going to show us is like what we can be as our best selves mm-hmm. because insofar as like the, uh, objective or subjective debate, it'll be able to see us a lot more objectively than we can see us. Right. Because it's not us, right. but it has a certain level of intelligence, which might be on par or much greater than ours. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, yeah, we'll start to see AI immerse itself in education, the medical system, politics, sociology. I mean, the big thing before even all those layers are touched, it's going to get rid of like everything's going to become automated. Yeah. So that's going to effectively render, uh, you know, hard labor useless. And once that occurs, those people have to find outlets somewhere. So, like, I guess that was the question I was more posing is mm. once once they're no longer just machines to uh, move something from A to B, do you think that, like, now we get to cultivate these potential unlocked gifts? I do think that, yeah, that uh, is very much going to be a part of it. It'll be a tricky transition period because... Yeah you know, like you mentioned, those that lower third of like survival needs mm-hmm. will have to find a way to be met. And that's why I, I like Andrew Yang. He's I was a, just about to bring him up. I, yeah. I heard him bring this up on a podcast. That's why I kind of mentioned it where uh, he was kind of saying like he thinks there'll be a resurgence in arts. Yes. And, and like that ultimately that will be the medium through which we communicate, through which we uh, exchange value and worth and everything else moving forward. Um, he thinks that there's going to be a great period of that that's going to coincide with the technological revolution. Yeah. I mean, once everyone's needs are met, what else do we really want to do as humans besides right. like explore the galaxy and create awesome things? Yeah. And, and you know, foster connections with others. And like, that really could be the end game, right? Like we yeah, can get dude. to the out. That's where I'm going. Right. Like, <laughs> like we could begin to explore the great unknown in the ocean and in the, in the galaxy, like our brain, right? Like those three things we know so little about. Yeah. When, at the end of the day, like as far as like concrete knowledge goes, it's like we don't know shit about the brain. We don't know anything about what lies at the depths of the ocean or, uh, you know, as far as like outside the galaxy from from what our co- computing power can uh, see at this point. It's just like all we know is that there's more. Oh, yeah. And I don't think we're necessarily all that far from it. Right. As one decade closes, another begins, you know, in 10 years from now, I don't know that we won't have these, some of these answers. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I kind of agree. But we'll uh, also find more questions along the way. Right, which takes my fear away because I was going to reply and say that kind of scares me. Mm. Um, I, I, I don't think, think we ever reach a questionless point of existence because just based on my own experience, like every time you solve something and it almost seems like it's like uh, built in, yeah. like you, you immediately have another challenge. Yeah, 
and, and that I'm good with. Uh, obviously, like I, I think that that is a fantastic methodology for moving forward in a yeah. practical way. You want something to motivate you, right? Because like my fear is that like we become invalidated. No, I don't think that. At least that doesn't resonate with me. That's good. I yeah. mean, <laughs> that gives me hope. That's all I can ask for. Yeah. All right. So I want to end on a light note, uh, especially since we're talking about exploring the galaxy. <laughs> I've heard this story. I think it's phenomenal. Tell me about your encounter with an extraterrestrial. Yeah. So um, I'd watched a documentary that day. Um, it's called Thrive. Some people may have seen it. I think I saw this. And it kind of just, among other things, talked about how various members of NASA or other parts of government uh, had seen ets or crafts and were keeping it secret and some of them were testifying in it i remember laying outside that night just looking up at the stars in my backyard like wow like i really want to see something like like space brothers and sisters show me like reveal yourselves <laughs> and uh nothing happened and I, I went i went to bed and as i'm laying in bed uh i saw all these like orange circles like the flower of life just mm -hmm. uh cover my field of vision but they were opaque so i could still like see my room okay although it was dark so they're a bit brighter than anyway that yeah know, imagine that and upon closing my eyes i could still see them so it's this really weird experience of like being able to see something physically and then closing my eyes and being able to see it like in my mind's eye mm -hmm. and then similarly to that like uh an extraterrestrial gray alien like you'd expect the big eyes and you know not that tall appeared And yeah, I, I didn't really know what to do. I was just shocked. Yeah. Uh, if it happened again now, I would be a lot more, I guess, engaging. Mm -hmm. But then it was just such an unusual experience of like, I wanted these things to happen and then it did. And I just didn't right. really know where to go from there. So I have questions. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I guess first and foremost, um, was it like... Like, would you describe it as like the vision of an alien or was this thing physically manifested in your room? I would say it was like semi-physical. Okay. Like it was similar to the rings where it was not like as solid as this table or you and I, mm -hmm. but it was, it was there. I mean, it's, it's like ethereal. I don't really have a, yeah. a thing to compare that to. Yeah. Well, I, I guess like, you know, if we're, if we're being like scientific about this and we want to go through the method, like testing hypotheses. It would make sense that like, you know, there are probably creatures out there more intelligent than us that have a lot more technology than us. And like, maybe they just heard your call. Yeah. And, yeah. They, and they just like, you know, sent down a hologram. That's what I think to this day. But I don't think it's necessarily, I, I mean, personally, I don't think it was a hologram. I think these super advanced beings are able to manifest themselves through other dimensions. Yeah. And if they do exist on such a higher wavelength than us, they kind of have to like distill themselves into our reality and maybe we can only catch a glimpse of them yeah like, wh whether it's a projection or the actual manifestation of one i i think that like at least in my mind it's a, a it's like a cosmic joke of sorts oh in yeah the sense that it presented in the vision of like what we would think an alien looks like yeah right because like the likelihood that we have like drawn out what an extraterrestrial looks like and that that extraterrestrial actually exists seems lower probability than there just being like a bunch of life that we can't really fathom. I think there's probably both. Like, I think yeah. that the things we've drawn out, maybe it's part of the collective consciousness of ideas that other people have seen. Right. Or, that's true. Yeah. But yeah, there's yeah, also probably some really abstract life forms that we would not even really know how to engage. Yeah. I mean, this is a whole... Like, this was a humanoid for sure. Right. right. Yeah. This is like a whole different conversation, but like <laughs> just the, uh, the ideas of uh, the dimensions. 
and like how many we're cognitively aware of versus like how many actually exist are probably, you know, pretty mind blowing if we could actually wrap our heads around it. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I'm going to leave it on that. I uh, really appreciate you being here. Uh, when, when are you coming out with your pod? The Good Vibe Tribe. Um, I don't know. I, I, it's we, copywritten. Don't anybody take it. <laughs> we were just discussing this. I guess uh, I'll I'll start it up this year. I may as well. It's. Uh, I'm just putting the pressure on. No, it's it's. It, I appreciate it. It's good to be inspired and, and motivated. So yeah, it was it was a lot of fun being here, and I always like going on people's podcasts. So I may as well host one, right? I. It's a different experience. I got to tell you. I'm sure. Uh, it is. I feel way more confident being in somebody else's uh, scenario than I do on my own. Mm. But I think that like. I think you're one of the few people who could pull off like a solo pod. Which okay. I've thought, I've thought about that. And I feel like in order for it to be practical for me to do with any sort of regularity, it'd have to be that way. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever tried anything along those lines. It's hard. Not really. I mean, I made a few like, hey, I'm talking to the camera YouTube videos. Right, right. But yeah. Way different, man. <laughs> way different. Because like, you know, you're basically having this conversation with thousands of people who aren't able to respond. Yeah, I'd prefer to be engaged, I think, but I guess I can't definitively say that until I give, uh, you know, a solo thing a try. I'm excited to see how it turns out. All right. All right. Uh, I, I just want, you know, a little footnote credit. <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> Perfect. All right, thanks a lot for being here. That's going to wrap it for episode 31 of the vlogcast. Hopefully Chin gets his skinny ass back here now that uh, he's, he's on the weight loss grind. Uh, we'll see you guys all again next week.